We're going back now to 1691, an important year in determining the future of Ireland. 1691 also happens to be the title of a new novel by author Joe Joyce. The novel opens in May of that year in the midst of the Nine Years' War. The armies of the English King James and his Dutch usurper, King William, are on the move again, resuming where they had left off for the winter. The Jacobites, supporters of King James, have been pushed westwards beyond the River Shannon following their defeat at the Battle of the Boyne the previous year. But they're far from beaten. To talk about the history that underpins his book, I'm joined now by Joe Joyce. Joe, you're very welcome indeed to the programme. Thank you, Miles. You're best known, perhaps, I think, for your trilogy of thrillers set in World War II Ireland, starting with Echo Land. So why did you wind back the clock several centuries to explore the events of 1691? Well, I suppose this is more a labour of love than anything else, Miles. I grew up on the battlefield in Ockram County, Galway, where my father was the principal of the National School and passionately interested in the local history. I like to think of this as the book he intended to write but never got around to during his lifetime. Uh, I'm sure he wouldn't have written it as fiction, but I think he'd be happy that it sticks closely to the facts insofar as we can know them. And your father is, I think, either directly or indirectly responsible for the museum on the site or near the site of the battle. Well, that's true. Yes, he built up a museum in his schoolroom uh, from artefacts, um, mostly found by local farmers ploughing their fields and so on. And it developed into a a wider museum than that of all sorts of local history and uh, artefacts to do with agriculture. But uh, the central aspects of the museum are now in the interpretive centre in in the village. Now, the subject matter of the book happens during the Nine Years' War, the so-called Nine Years' War of the 1690s sometimes or in some senses considered to be the first global war Ireland uh, was involved in it. Why did Ireland become part of this European struggle for power? Well, essentially, France was at war with uh, pretty much all of its neighbours and the position of England was of crucial importance to both sides. The Grand Alliance who were fighting France feared that the Catholic King James of England would join with his cousin Louis XIV of France. And meanwhile, in England, of course, the Protestant Parliament was conspiring to unseat James and replace him with these uh, Protestant Dutch son-in-law, William of Orange, who was the de facto leader of the Grand Alliance. So you had a couple of interests coming together, both local and wider. James was ousted, fled to France, came to Ireland, which was still loyal to him, with the help of Louis and French forces to use Ireland as a stepping stone to Scotland and ultimately retake England. So the campaign in Ireland uh, was, if you like, a front in the European war, as well as being a war to decide the fate of this country, along with that of Scotland and England. Now, when people think about the Jacobite, the Williamite Jacobite wars, they tend to think of the Battle of the Boyne as being the decisive battle, which is very, very unfair to Ockram. Tell us why the Boyne was not the decisive battle and what happened between the Battle of the Boyne and the Battle of Ockram. Well, the Battle of the Boyne, as everybody knows, was in uh, July 1690. Essentially, the Williamites under uh, William himself won that one. And it wasn't a decisive battle in the sense that either army was uh, absolutely destroyed by it. But it was uh, seen as symbolically and politically more important. I think for two reasons, really, because both of the kings were there for starters and uh, it opened access uh, for the Williamites to Dublin, which, of course, was the most strategically important city and town in Ireland. 
The Battle of Ockram then uh, came a year later and was a much more decisive battle in that the uh, Jacobite army was uh, severely depleted as a result of it. What was the lead-up? What was the prelude to the Battle of Ockram? Well, as you said in your intro, the campaign of uh, 1691 started in May. And uh, the reason they started in May actually was simply that uh, there was enough grass in the fields uh, to feed all the horses that were required to move armies around. So at the start of this campaign, the Jacobites were ensconced beyond the River Shannon and in counties Kerry and parts of Cork. And the Williamites set out from Mullingar to try and wrap up the war in Ireland this year. So they seized that loan somewhat against the odds and the Jacobites headed westwards with the options of essentially retreating to Galway or to Limerick. But the French commander, the Marquis de Saint-Roux, decided, against the advice of many of his generals, to make a stand at the village of Orkram. Now, the book centres on two men. One name I think will be very familiar to Irish listeners, the other not so familiar, Patrick Sarsfield and Hugh Mackay. Tell us about these two men. Yeah, well, as you say, Sarsfield is very familiar to all of us and is very well known as the Irish hero of the war. He was a Catholic, obviously, a career soldier. He was in his mid-30s at this period. During his earlier years, he had lived the life of something of a rake in London, getting involved in duelling and a couple of escapades of kidnapping uh, rich widows, which seemed to be a thing for um, army officers at the time. He actually helped one of his uh, fellow captains at one stage, Robert Clifford, who ended up fighting with him in Ireland to uh, kidnap a widow to uh, Calais, I think it was in France. But unfortunately, she was well connected to the kings and um, James got his cousin Louis to send a detachment to get her back, which he did and arrested Clifford. Sarsfield managed to get away and join the French army for a while. Uh, He subsequently got back to the English army when uh, things had quietened down and went into exile with James when he was overthrown by William of Orange. So he came back with uh, James to Ireland in 1689 at the start of uh, what we call the Williamite War. On the other hand, Hugh Mackay is a Scottish soldier who was also a career soldier. Both he and Sarsfield, in fact, were both very brave soldiers. But Mackay was in the English army and was uh, seconded by the Stuarts at one point to the Dutch army, where he married a Dutch woman and stayed on when... The break came between James and William, and in fact, he was one of the uh, people who accompanied William on his invasion of England. They were very different in personalities, and as I say, Sarsfield led something of a rakish life early on. Mackay was a very fervent Protestant who was always appalled by the uh, carry-on of his soldiers, the drunkenness and debauchery and wrote a prayer for them to say uh, on their way into battle. Both men survived the war in Ireland, but didn't survive the subsequent uh, battles of the Nine Years' War uh, on the continent. Now, the Battle of Ockram, I think, was the bloodiest battle ever fought on Irish territory. Um, Why was it particularly savage? What, What exactly happened? Yes, well, it certainly was one of the bloodiest, if not the bloodiest. Um, the position of Ockram, uh, chosen by the French general Saint-Roux, was a very good defensive one. It's essentially a long sloping hill ro- running roughly north to south with a marsh to its east so that an enemy we would have to attack the higher ground from through very difficult terrain. 
which is what proved to happen. Successive waves of infantry attacks by the Williamites across the marsh were repulsed by the Jacobites, and fierce cavalry fighting was limited to the southern end of the front where the ground leveled off, but the Williamites made no progress there either. It appeared that they would have to withdraw in effect to suffer a defeat, but in one last desperate effort they uh, attacked along a narrow causeway at the northern end of the front. The Jacobite defences there had been weakened, so but the Williamite cavalry then managed to break through and attack the infantry defenders from the side, and seeing this the French general saint Roux led his cavalry to the rescue but was famously decapitated by a cannonball and his cavalry gathered up his body and rode away and the infantry was left to the mercy of the Williamite horsemen and the battle quickly turned from what looked like a victory for the Jacobites into a catastrophe. How many people died in one afternoon in six hours or so of, of fighting? Well, it is impossible to know for sure. Uh, the best estimates uh, suggest roughly 6,000 in total more than two-thirds of them, more than 4,000 on the Jacobite side and the remainder on the Williamite side. And God knows how many were wounded or maimed in, in the exchanges. And to put that into perspective, a friend of mine who encouraged me to write this book, Coleman Morrissey, likes to point out that there were 8,000 killed at the Battle of Gettysburg, which is generally seen as the turning point in the American Civil War. But there were more than 150,000 combatants at Gettysburg and the battle lasted three days. Uh, at Ockram, there were a total of 40,000 combatants equally divided between two, both sides, and it lasted an afternoon and evening. So you get some idea of the scale of the slaughter there. And the Jacobite dead were also left unburied on the battlefield. And seemingly, there was nobody there to bury them afterwards, leading to graphic descriptions some years later of the bleached bones lying on the hillside like a great flock of sheep. Indeed, there's also a fascinating account some 20 years later of barrels full of skulls from Ockram being shipped from Dublin to England to be ground down, crushed as fertilisers. Now, you mentioned that if your father had been given the opportunity to write the book, that he would probably not have written a novel. Why did you choose to write an historical novel rather than a conventional history book? Essentially, I think because I like the synthesis between fiction and fact. Um, I've written non-fiction books in the past, notably in collaboration with uh, Peter Murta, and I've written contemporary thrillers, although that was so long ago now that they could be classed as historical fiction as well. And as you mentioned, my most recent uh, thrillers, the Echoland series set in Dublin during the um, emergency of the Second World War. So when it came to writing about 1691, I never really considered writing it as a conventional history book, I liked the idea not of fictionalising the story, but of being able to delve into the personalities of the people involved, bring out the nuances and uh, their friendships and enmities and all the uncertainties that they faced in their daily uh, decisions. Unlike the Echoland series where the characters and plots are mostly invented against uh, a background of real events, there are no made-up characters in uh, in this book. Everybody mentioned in it uh, was a real person, as were the events. Now, you've to some extent, you've, you've fictionalised, or at least you have written fiction, although, as you say, uh, you have uh, written a very factual, fictionalised account. But you've still engaged in a certain amount of very interesting revisionism because the accepted version of events casts Henry Luttrell in a bad light. He's seen as a traitor. But 
in the book, the way you write the book, he may not actually have been one. Explain who Henry Luttrell was and, and what you've found out. That is true. Um, when you put yourself back into the time and place, uh, a somewhat different story emerges about about Henry Luttrell. And he may well have been the victim of a very clever piece of Williamite psychological warfare, uh, which helped to destroy his posthumous reputation. He was a cavalry colonel at Ockram, and as you mentioned, has gone down in history as a uh, traitor for letting the Williamite cavalry through what is still known in the village as Luttrell's Pass. And he later joined the Williamites and was given a handsome pension by the British government. But in the immediate aftermath of the battle, there was no indication that Luttrell was treated as a traitor. His position in the army and his close friendship with Patrick Sarsfield continued. But the sequence of events that uh, led to this uh, interesting piece of uh, what we would now call psyops or psychological warfare came after the surrender of Galway as its garrison was uh, allowed to go to Limerick and was escorted part of the way by a Williamite cavalry. Luttrell was sent from Limerick by the Jacobites to take over from the escort. At the handover, the Williamite commander asked him why the Jacobites were continuing to fight after their enormous defeat at Ockram, and Luttrell replied with his own question, asking him did the Williamite General Ginkel have full powers to conclude a treaty. That was it until several weeks later when the French Jacobite general in Limerick received a message from a French Williamite general whom he had met in Galway. The Williamite general told him that a secret message was being sent to Luttrell answering his question. So when the messenger arrived the secret message was found. Luttrell was immediately arrested and court-martialed but he was acquitted of negotiating with the enemy even though the court-martial had been formed by his opponents within the Jacobite army. However, he was kept imprisoned in uh, King John's castle by his erstwhile friend Sarsfield until after the treaty was signed, and he then joined the Williamites as a small minority of Jacobites did under the treaty's terms, and he negotiated a pension for himself if his military services were dispensed with. What was his ultimate fate? What became of Luttrell then? Uh, His ultimate fate was uh, not a good one. He wasn't given a, a military position in the Williamite army, but he received the pension he had negotiated instead and he took over the family lands at Luttrellstown in West Dublin from his older brother Simon who had gone through France with Sarsfield. Uh, Sixteen years later he was shot on what is now Wolftone Street in Dublin and part of the traditional story is that his assassin was somebody who survived Ockram. At the time however it was believed to have been an irate husband. Luttrell was a well-known womanizer or someone who hoped to inherit his lands but no one was ever charged with the murder. So what happens then after the Battle of Ockram? You talked about the Siege of Galway and then the Siege of Limerick, the Treaty of Limerick. What happens then? Well, essentially, Galway uh, uh, surrendered after a couple of weeks. And uh, it's a, a siege that is actually quite interesting and is usually glossed over pretty quickly in the history books in the sense that it's a paragraph between Ockram and Limerick. And uh, Limerick, of course, the siege lasted for three months or so and ended up, as you say, with, with the treaty and the bulk of the Jacobite army going on to France in the hopes of invading England the following summer, which was a very real plan at the time and was only thwarted by the defeat of the French Navy in the English Channel by a Dutch-English fleet sometime in early... 1692. 
What was the impact then of the events in Ireland on the greater conflict, on the European conflict, on the the so-called Nine Years' War? Well, it closed down what you might call the Western Front in that war between France and the Grand Alliance of its neighbours. Ireland and England were put firmly in the anti-French camp and it allowed the majority of the Williamite army eventually to move to the continent and reinforce the Grand Alliance there. And many of the people mentioned in the book and the generals mentioned in the book, uh, including, of course, Sarsfield, whom we all know, died on a continental battlefield. But uh, so did Hugh Mackay and uh, another man called Thomas Talmash, who was an English general in the Williamite army. So the book is called 1691, a novel. It's self-published by Joe Joyce, available in paperback and ebook. To be sure to, to, to get hold of a copy, go to joejoyce.ie or search for 1691 on Amazon if you're interested in reading this new historical novel about the seminal events of that year. Joe, many thanks indeed for joining us on the History Show this evening. Thank you, Miles. That's about all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Next week on the programme, we'll be exploring the radical life of Margaret Skinner, who was the subject of a new biography by Dr Mary McAuliffe. We'll end tonight with some music, though, as uh, we've just been hearing about that seminal battle in 1691. This is the Chieftain's version of The Battle of Ockram. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, for me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. Twitter at RTE History Show.